Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This is a milestone show for me, the one to which you're listening right now, because this will be the very last show that I will be recording for 2021, or should I say that I'm going to be hosting for 2021, but I will be back in 2022. I'm still deciding whether or not I should do my next show on January 1st, 2022, i.e. New Year's Day. I don't know if I'm going to exactly have the energy, but then again, I don't celebrate New Year's the same way that I did when I was in college. In other words, I still stay up to watch the ball drop, and me being in the central time zone, I actually stay up until um, 1 o'clock Eastern or um, midnight Central to watch this ball drop here in my new home, my new were home city of Nashville. And I don't know if I'm necessarily going to have the energy to do another show, but if I do, it will be the best and worst cinematically of 2021. But let me just take a moment before I get into my first review to tell you as we are almost finished with the year, how is 2021 overall? And I'm not just talking about the movies. I would probably say 2021 was not nearly as bad a year as 2020. 2020 was described towards the very end as a dumpster fire. And sure, a lot of bad things happened in 2021, but the fact that we have a COVID vaccine and also the fact that I do this show without having to wipe everything in the studio down is in a con or I would say it's better than last year. But with that said, 2021 still wasn't a great year over, overall. We still had hurricanes. We still had forest fires, rapid forest fires at that, or should I say widespread forest fires. Not to mention we began the year with the January tw- uh, 6th insurrection. However, bad things happen, you know, even in good years. But I think 2021 shows that while we have come a long way as citizens of this world, we still have a long way to go in the coming years, and hopefully we do get that way. But that's enough about how 2021 was as a whole. I'll probably explain that more when I come back to do my best and worst of 2021, and I will focus on movies, not necessarily on current events. So with that said, uh, how are, how is the year in terms of movies? Well, I still haven't seen the best movies of 2021 yet, I don't think, but my inclination is that I will see them in the coming weeks. However, I will not be saying I will review them for you on next week's show because I won't be here next week. I will be here um, in a few weeks, but not next week. I'm going to be leaving town and spending the holiday with my family. And I'm looking very forward to that. And I hope if you don't spend your holidays with your family, hopefully you spend them with your loved ones. But it is great that you and I made it through 2021 okay. And here is hoping that 2022 will be a better year. And that is what I'm briefly going to say about 2021, very briefly.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Being the Ricardos. This is a film that is in select theaters right now and premiered in select theaters on December 10th, 2021. It will be available on Prime Video, that is Amazon Prime Video, beginning December 21st, which this year is a Tuesday. And I was fortunate enough to see this at a local theater that was playing this film, and I'm really glad I did. This movie is uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. And Aaron Sorkin is best known for writing, not so much for directing. He's written such movies as A Few Good Men, which was the movie that really put him on um, the map in terms of writing films. He also went on to write the Woody Allen film Malice, also the American Presidents, and such popular shows as Sports Night, uh, The Wet Swing, and also The Newsroom, amongst others. But in terms of directing, he has um, a few credits to his name. He debuted as a director in 2017 with Molly's Game, which was an excellent film that starred Jessica Chastain as the titular Molly. He also directed The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was one of the best films from last year and had actually Sasha Baron Cohen's best dramatic performance to date. And Being the Ricardos is probably a, a film that is familiar to him as an entertainer, not with his uh, law background. But it tells the fascinating story about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz as they face a crisis as they're filming one particular episode of their hit show, I Love Lucy, in a particular week that could end their careers and another that could end their marriage. Now, that's the tagline. Being the Ricardos is not as far as I know, based on a book, but it could be, but it is certainly inspired by actual events, but it does have some fantastic performances by the likes of Nicole Kidman, who plays Lucille Ball. And, uh, it's not the first time that Nicole Kidman has played a public figure, but she's probably played her most public figure in this film. And not only does she play the funny Lucille Ball that we know from having played Lucy Ricardo on I Love Lucy, but she also plays Lucille Ball as a savvy businesswoman, especially as I Love Lucy becomes a huge hit um, in the Nielsen ratings. And just to give you some perspective on how big a hit I Love Lucy was when it was a brand new show in the 50s. If there is a sitcom that comes out today, and there is actually somebody who explains this in the beginning of the film, if there is a, a sitcom that comes out today that is a big hit, like, for example, Bob Hart's Abishola, it may get at most 15 million views, and or rather 15 million people are watching it when it premieres. And that's taking into account that we now have cable television, we have the internet with very efficient video streaming. So there are a lot of other things to watch besides what's live on TV. And let's face it, five, 10 years from now, 
there are probably not going to be very many shows that are going to be airing live. And for that matter, I think basically 10 years from now, I would not be surprised to see all the cable networks except for the news and sports stations just shutting down and just having everything streaming. And there's nothing wrong with that because streaming's not the future. It's basically the present. But in the past, as I said, a, a new sitcom that airs on CBS, ABC, any one of those could get at most 15 million views, uh, 15 million uh, people watching it at one time, and it would be a hit. I Love Lucy, on the other hand, which was a hit when it came out, unlike The Honeymooners, got 60 million people watching it a night. And that is staggering. But then again, when you think about it, the only medium that households had besides their TV was radio. And TV certainly filled in a gap that radio couldn't. And radio changed as a result of the popularity of TV, which was, in essence, an inevitable shift. But anyway, so... As I said previously, Nicole Kidman plays Lucille Ball. Desi Arnaz is played by Javier Bardem. And Javier Bardem has a bit of a challenge because he doesn't sound or really look a lot like Desi Arnaz. Plus, there is something that might be controversial to some Latinx uh, people who watch this film in that Javier Bardem is Spanish. In other words, he he comes from Spain. And Desi Arnaz was Cuban. Some people might have a problem with that, but maybe not so much this day and age. There have been some controversies with some people who, despite being members of the Latinx community, are playing people who are who have a Mexican background despite not being of Mexican descent. But uh, then again... Uh, Javier Bardem also played another character named Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, who is presumably Mexican, and nobody had a problem with Javier Bardem playing him. I think people would probably have more of a problem with the fact that Javier Bardem does not exactly look or sound a lot like Desi Arnaz, and that might be a problem for some people, but... I still thought Javier Bardem, even though he didn't quite have the looks or the mannerisms of the late Desi Arnaz, still did a good job, especially with Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball behind the scenes. And some of the most intriguing parts of this movie happened behind the scenes with some very sharp dialogue by Aaron Sorkin. And also I have to give credit to Aaron Sorkin for this script because sometimes at Aaron Sorkin's worst... He can write very intelligent dialogue, but unfortunately, sometimes he has the habit of making all his characters sound the same. I thought that was one of the main weaknesses with The Social Network, which came out 11 years ago. But with this film, I think to his credit, every person sounds distinct, sounds distinctly different from the other person. And that's certainly true with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's co-stars, uh, William Frawley and Vivian Vance, who are played by J.K. Simmons and Nina Arianda, respectively. J.K. Simmons is, of course, very familiar to uh, movie audiences, but Nina Arianda is actually um, probably more familiar to people who are um, avid Broadway uh, attendees than uh, TV or movie watchers. But I do think that Nina Arianda turned in what I think is 
the best performance of the four main people um, as Vivian Vance, uh, best known for playing Ethel on uh, Lucy Lucy's best friend on I Love Lucy. And J.K. Simmons was good as William Frawley, but may have had the same kind of weakness that Javier Bardem did in the sense that he doesn't exactly look like William Frawley, but I, I did think he was serviceable. Plus, he had really good uh, comic relief lines as well. And being the Ricardos does not just focus on the making of the, of a typical episode of I Love Lucy, but I did like how it focused on how much effort it took to make one episode, not just with the actors in the show, but also with the showrunners and the writers, including Madeline Pugh, who's played by Alia Shawkat of Arrested Development fame, and Jake Lacey, who plays Bob Carroll. And both uh, Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll have a relationship that's very similar to uh, Fred and Ethel from the show in the sense that they work together and they work together well, but they also bicker a lot. And I thought that was actually a very good and maybe somewhat unintended parallel to draw to the actual show. There's also a good performance here by Tony Hale, who plays the executive producer, Jess Oppenheimer of I love Lucy. And it shows a really good dynamic between what's going on in the making of the show and also the background of the personal or the personal life of the, um, main two Lucille ball and Desi Arnaz, particularly when, there is speculation, particularly this being the 50s and the House of Un-American Activities having their communist scare like they do, that Lucille Ball might be a member of the Communist Party. And as it turns out, there might be a little bit of truth to that, but sometimes the rumors that go around are more intriguing than the actual truth. And there was also some behind-the-scenes tension with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's marriage because after all they were a power couple and they played one of the most admired married couples in the history of television yet very much like Sonny and Cher and um, Jim and Tammy Faye after them as well as countless others their marriage was rocky Maybe not necessarily because of their success, but their success certainly didn't help things either. And I do actually think that being the Ricardos could have focused a bit more on their marriage. But then again, there have been other TV movies, not theatrically released films, that have focused on the cataclysmic marriage between Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, as well as the irony that even when they divorced, they still remained uh, very good friends and also business partners, which a lot of people don't uh, realize, particularly, you know, from reading the articles as well as watching the I Love Lucy reruns. So for me, being the Ricardos, I think had a lot of boxes to check. And some critics have said that because of the many <clears throat> subplots that being the Ricardos had, that the tone of the film was uneven. And I don't agree with that. I think maybe the tone of the film might have been uneven, but I do think that movies that are based on true stories and give a week in the life of particular people 
kind of earn the right more to be tonally uneven because there's a lot that goes into making a successful sitcom, particularly one successful episode. There's a lot that's going on behind the scenes with lawyers, with censors, with sponsors, and there's also the pressure to put the show together and have it be actually funny. So no wonder the tone of this film is uneven, but I thought Aaron Sorkin directed and wrote this film very well. I think that Aaron Sorkin has a spotless directorial effort to his name so far, this being his third film, by no means is this sophomore, or in this case, junior slump. And he also directed the actors very well. The four actors in the film, the four main actors, I should say, Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem, Nina Arianda, and J.K. Simmons had an especially hard role to play, playing figures that not only people who watch TV in the 1950s knew well, but, but people today of all ages are presumably five and over know particularly well from not only the fact that the Lucy episodes are released on DVD, they're on streaming. And when I was growing up, the reruns were on Nick at night as well. I have distinct memories of watching that show with my grandparents in reruns. So I think that there was a lot more pressure for these four actors to play these public figures, but overall, With Javier Bardem having probably the biggest challenge of them all, I think they all played them very well, both when the cameras were rolling within the film, when an I Love Lucy episode was being put together, and most especially when the cameras stopped rolling and they had to deal with all the pressures of putting together a hit TV show. So being the Ricardos, I was very impressed by, I thought the dialogue was razor sharp. I did not think that Aaron Sorkin fell into that trap of having all his actors or all his characters sound exactly the same. And for that reason, being the Ricardos gets my rating of a knockout. And this is coming from a huge, I love Lucy fan, particularly I, I love to either stay up late or get up early in the morning and, and have an I Love Lucy rerun um, on TV because rest assured, even though nearly 70 years have passed since the first episode of I Love Lucy aired, it still strangely feels timeless. And if it and if it feels dated to some, it's at least timeless enough in terms of its comedy as well as the everlasting appeal of Lucille Ball and her co-stars. And I do think that being the Ricardos does not get too into the juicy gossip that goes on behind the scenes, but it tells a very honest tale of people who made it and still have to hustle. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is A Boy Called Christmas, which is a film that just premiered on Netflix on December 10th, 2021. And 
I actually kind of wonder to myself sometimes when I see a film with as big a budget and as much effort that's put into it as A Boy Called Christmas, why Netflix even bothers to have romantic holiday comedies like, for instance, A Christmas Prince, just to name one of them, that rival the Hallmark Channel. I I just don't know exactly why. It's one of those things, kind of like with HBO and children's programming, HBO airs movies uncensored, and they air very gritty and realistic TV shows, but they also have aired programming for children. For example, uh, one such example is they air Sesame Street episodes before they they're shown on PBS. And I always wonder, I mean, if it makes money for HBO, I can understand that, but at the same time, HBO is not losing anything if they lose their children's programming. So back to Netflix, it kind of makes me wonder when they have these very formulaic romantic comedies that could and might as well air on the Hallmark Network, why they even bother with them, Uh, especially when they have a film like A Boy Called Christmas or a film that came out last year, which I would probably consider a new holiday classic, the animated movie Klaus, which came out, unfortunately, when my show was on hiatus, so I didn't get to review it. Maybe I'll review it some other time, but Back to the movie that I'm going to review for you, which is A Boy Called Christmas. This is a British production, and it is based on a book written by Matt Haig, and it is directed by Gil Keenan, who also co-wrote the screenplay for this film. Gil Keenan is a British director, and before he directed this film, he actually directed the 2006 Academy Award-nominated film, Monster House, which was nominated for Best Animated Feature. It lost to Happy Feet. And while it's not hard to see why it lost to Happy Feet, because Happy Feet was a great animated film, Monster House was still an excellent animated movie. After uh, Monster House, Gil Keenan also directed City of Ember, which was actually a live-action film. He then, years later, went on to direct the remake of Poltergeist, which was decent, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So this is his first film that he's directing since Poltergeist. And fortunately for him, A Boy Called Christmas, despite being based on a book, is actually an original way of looking at the origin story of Santa Claus, or as he's known in Great Britain, Father Christmas. So it follows the trials and tribulations of an ordinary redhead boy um, whose name is Nicholas, who's played by a fine young actor named Henry Lawful. And this young boy, Nicholas, with a loyal pet mouse who actually talks and a reindeer named Blitzen at his side, and you can kind of tell where he's going with this, sets out on an extraordinary adventure to find his father, who is on a quest to discover the fabled village of Elfhelm. And you can kind of tell where this movie is going, where you have a young boy whose name is Nicholas, like St. Nicholas, who's on a journey through a wintry desert, basically. (laughs) Yeah, that might seem like a a paradox to you or an oxymoron, but it actually isn't because even though um, the North Pole or the Arctic Circle is cold, it might as well be a desert instead of with sand, you have snow. 
But anyway, there are some very good uh, supporting actors in this film, including uh, Academy Award winner Jim Broadbent, who plays the king of the village where Nicholas is from. You also have Nicholas's evil aunt, uh, Carlotta, who's played very well in this film by Kristen Wiig. And one of the last uh, well-known actors I'll mention is actually... Sally Hemings, who plays what I believe is her first villain role, but like Kristen Wiig, she plays it very well, and you can also tell that she has a lot of fun with it. So in the middle, or rather, on the narrative framework of this film, which the main story of this young boy, Nicholas, um, is, is telling, it, it deals with a woman in London named Aunt Ruth, who's played actually on a slight change of uh, typecasting by Maggie Smith. Now, Maggie Smith, over the last 30 years, has made a living for herself playing a frumpy old woman. Here she plays a frumpy old woman, but not the kind that will look down upon you if you're wearing the wrong clothing. Like, she has made a fine living for herself playing literally over the last 30 years. And it actually is kind of amazing because 30 years ago, Maggie Smith played the elderly Wendy in Steven Spielberg's Hook. 30 years ago, she was considered an old lady. Now, she's still hanging on there, and I got to admire her for that. But anyway, um, Aunt Ruth... Uh, rather, Maggie Smith plays Aunt Ruth, who is the aunt to uh, Matt's children, and Matt is played by Joel Fry, who is a dedicated uh, parent to his three children, Andrea, Patrick, and Moppet, who are played by I Isabella O'Sullivan, Eden Lawrence, and Ayumide Garrick, respectively. So... Very much like The Princess Bride, Aunt Ruth comes in, and while Matt is reluctantly uh, away from the house at work, Aunt Ruth tells these three children a bedtime story, and it's about this young redheaded boy named Nicholas and his quest to find his father in the village of Elfhelm, and ultimately the origins of Santa Claus. So there have been many stories, not just movies, although there have been plenty of movies, but also books about the origin of Santa Claus and a boy called Christmas adds itself to that repertoire. But I don't get tired of those, uh, those kinds of films because Santa Claus is one of those figures that did not come about because of a specific book that one person wrote. He came from folklore. And there are various interpretations about how Santa Claus came to be. And the truth be told, I enjoy hearing every single one of them. I don't take one of them as the truth and the other as just <laughs> um, figments of imagination. I, I take them all as figments of imagination because it certainly says something about the author and his base of creativity when it comes to creating his own story about the origin of Santa Claus. So whenever you read one of these stories, if what, regardless of whether it's not, it's written by L Frank Baum or Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, or in this case, Matt Haig, it is fascinating to find out what people think about the origin of Santa Claus and how Santa Claus 
came to be without necessarily going back to the uh, scripts of saints and, and reading about how St. Nicholas became Santa Claus and, ra- and later Santa Claus. It's all open to interpretation, and I do think that this film has the technology as well as the imagination, not to mention the acting um, acumen of all the actors in this film, most especially Henry Lawful, who's a young boy who has the responsibility of anchoring such a film, and he does so very well. So I think this had all the right elements of what could be considered later on to be a Christmas classic. And it's a film very much like last year's Klaus that I could see myself going back to watching uh, at least once every Christmas. And being a film critic, one of the benefits of... Well, let me just say this first. A Boy Called Christmas gets my rating of a knockout. It is very imaginative and very fun. And getting back to the drawbacks as well as the advantages of being a film critic, one of the advantages of being a film critic is you get to see a lot of other people's stories and you also get to see a lot of people's really bad stories. Um, I guess that just comes with the territory. But also one of the drawbacks is when somebody asks me what my favorite Christmas movie is, I can't answer them. There are so many great ones. When people ask me what my favorite movie is, I give them my top five list. For my favorite um, Christmas movies, well, I have to uh, just kind of take a step back and actually put my list together. But if you ask me maybe a couple of months from now what my favorite Christmas movies are, maybe if I really think about it, take about 30 minutes to write down what my favorite what ones I loved and distinguish them from Christmas episodes or Christmas specials, because those aren't the same as movies. I might be able to give you a list, but would a boy called Christmas be in my top five list? I don't know, but considering how much fun I had watching it, it might be. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is House of Gucci. And this is a film that I'm kind of late to the party in terms of seeing because it came out on uh, a little while before Thanksgiving. It opened nationwide on Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. And because I was away enjoying Thanksgiving with family on um, on or around Thanksgiving, I was not able to come back here and uh, to do my show and review House of Gucci, but I'm still 
very glad I saw it because it's a film that I've been looking forward to seeing for quite some time. It's not a perfect film, but it does have certain great elements in it. It focuses primarily, but not exclusively, on Patrizia Reggiani, who is the first wife of the wealthy um, Maurizio Gucci, who is played in this film by Adam Driver. Uh, Ms. Reggiani is played by Lady Gaga in her first role where she does not play a singer. And granted, she does make an appearance semi as herself in Robert Rodriguez's Machete Kills, and she doesn't exactly play a singer in that film either, but she kind of plays herself, so I'm excluding um, that film, um, Machete Kills, from um, my other, (laughs) basically from this film, because Lady Gaga is undoubtedly one of the best things about this movie. And she's taking, or rather the people who made this film, as well as the studios and the producers took a big risk, having Lady Gaga play such a dynamic character. Who's not a singer, but to Lady Gaga's credit, a, she plays this part extremely well. And B it's a testament to how uh, good an actress she is, how she can play other people who are not singers. And she is probably, earning her way into the roster of such other talented actresses who, who started out as singers like Barbara Streisand, Cher, and a few others. And I think she earns this. So we start from the very beginning in the late seventies where Patrizia Reggiana is working for her family's uh, business in ground transportation and Maurizio Gucci Gucci is born into wealth. Again, he's played by Adam driver and he starts off by aspiring to become a lawyer and basically distance himself from his family's name. And Gucci has been around for as a company for a long time, but in the late seventies and throughout the eighties, Gucci, unlike other designers like Versace, Armani, Dolce and Gabbana had been falling on some very hard times. They have since made a huge comeback. And today Gucci is back on top for uh, being a legitimate fashion designer. But when this movie took place, it was relying mainly on old money and the Gucci family still had um, their hands in Gucci's assets, particularly Mauricio's father, Rodolfo Gucci, who's played in this film by Jeremy Irons. And I thought Jeremy Irons did actually pretty well playing a native Italian. He does speak mostly English in this role, but Jeremy Irons, um, classic, uh, bravado, um, in his voice can't actually be heard particularly well when he plays this role. And I think that's actually a credit to Jeremy Irons that he took that acting stretch. And he has somewhat of a fraught relationship with his brother, Aldo Gucci, who's played in this movie by Al Pacino. And Al Pacino, I think it's been a while since he played a native Italian. 
Of course, his most famous role is of Michael Corleone, who obviously came from an Italian family, but Michael Corleone was Italian-American, so it didn't quite count. He was born in America. This may be the first time, and I might be wrong about this, but bear with me here, that Al Pacino has actually played a native Italian. And he does well, although he certainly has the lion's roar that he does um, to reach the people in the back of the... um, movie audience. And Aldo Gucci has a spoiled and entitled son named Paolo Gucci, who's played by Jared Leto in a very unrecognizable performance. If I had not known that Jared Leto was in this film playing this role to the makeup um, artist credit, I wouldn't have known it was Jared Leto. Unfortunately, I do think that this is one of these roles where Jared Leto comes off as a standoffish and bombastic method actor. Now, certainly Al Pacino, very much like Shelley Winters and De Niro, is is known for his method acting as well. And of course, Daniel Day-Lewis after him. But when Jared Leto does the method acting um role with the exception of when he was in Dallas Buyers Club, he does come off as very obnoxious. And one such example of this is when he was in chapter 27, where he played Mark David Chapman. I thought that was his, his role in that film was a bit bombastic. And when Lindsay Lohan, in my opinion, acts better in that film than he does, that's a bit of a problem. But in this film, I I thought he could have played a very intriguing character, but instead he kind of played uh, Paolo Gucci too cartoonishly. And I thought that his voice, when he was doing an Italian accent, unlike Jeremy Irons or Al Pacino, or for that matter, Lady Gaga or Adam Driver, sounded too cartoonishly Italian. He sounded like the guy who did the voice of Mario in the um, Super Mario Brothers video games. And I'm talking specifically about Mario 64, where you hear, It's me, Mario! Hello! Excuse me for my bass voice. That is the best uh, Italian accent that I can do, or rather the best uh, Mario uh, impersonation that I can do. I'm a critic, not an impersonator. So, I don't let the great makeup on Jared Leto fool you. I I thought that he was probably the most distracting uh, person in this film. And it might have been a bit of a liability to have the movie focus on Aldo and Paolo Gucci themselves. But I, I thought they were intriguing characters. But again, Jared Leto, even in scenes with Al Pacino, undermined the effect that his character could have had. He came off as way too cartoonish. And I really thought the film should have focused more on the marriage and the love story as well as the breaking up of the love story between Maurizio Gucci and Patrizia Reggiani, as well as the story of how Gucci became a respected brand in the fashion industry as the 80s and 90s rolled on. And there were also some mistakes that director Ridley Scott made in terms of timing of the film. For example, there's one scene where... Adam Driver and Lady Gaga, in their, as their respective characters, are getting married. And this is supposed to be a, a scene that takes place in the early 80s. But the song that's playing in the background, in an Italian church, by the way, is the song 
Faith by George Michael that didn't come out until 1987, yet this scene is supposed to take place in 1981. Not to mention, I thought it kind of threw off the tone of the scene um, as it, it was. And the plot did get very intriguing as Patricia Reggiani and Mauricio Gucci's marriage is falling apart. And the movie, to its credit, does take an objective view as to what could have caused their marriage to fall apart, leaving the interpretation for the audience to extract themselves, even if they're not a movie critic like me. And I thought that was good, but I thought that the resolution of the two characters' divorce was not played out the way it should have been. It felt tacked on to the very end. And I thought there were some crucial scenes, which I won't give away, by the way, because there is a way that their conflict is resolved or the way it ends that will spoil the film. And Words on Film has a very... um solid, no spoiler alert rule that I do my best, my very best not to break. But House of Gucci did have some very excellent performances. Lady Gaga, I think, was the film's primary saving grace. Adam Driver was also very good. And I don't know if Adam Driver is of Italian descent, but if he isn't, he fooled me in this film. Jared Leto, on the other hand, did not. But Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons did turn in some very solid supporting performances. The only problem was I didn't think the narrative was very smooth. And I think that the the story of the main marriage between Patricia Reggiani and Maurizio Gucci could have been the thread that made... That, that held this film together, but the story of their marriage felt like it was in um, spits and false starts. It, it just didn't really feel very smooth, and I felt like I was watching a preview of a film rather than the film itself. But I did think it was serviceable, it just wasn't great. So House of Gucci gets my rating of a checkout. I think if the acting was any worse from Lady Gaga most especially, the film would have been a strikeout. But Lady Gaga and Adam Driver anchored this film extremely well. Frankly, Jared Leto probably turned into turned in the most cartoonish and lampoonish performance here, particularly as his makeup, while well done, makes him look like Gallagher. So with his performance, he looks like Gallagher doing an imitation of Mario from the video games. And also the script could have used some major work, but Ridley Scott, I thought, did relatively well directing this film. It's certainly not his best film that he's ever directed. And certainly the film that he directed earlier this year, that was supposed to come out in 2020, The Last Duel, was a lot better in terms of its storytelling, primarily than House of Gucci.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And as I said in the very beginning of this show, for those of you who tuned in late, this is my very last show for 2021. I'm going to take two weeks and spend some time with my family for the holiday season. And I hope you get to spend some time with your loved ones, if not necessarily your family, this holiday season. The downside of this... The, the major downside is the fact that I will not be uh, coming in to do my show for the next two weeks. However, it, there is a very strong possibility that my first show of the year, which will be on January 1st, 2021, or at least that will be the date that I will be recording the show, will be the best and worst of 2021. So I will have a lot of work to do. But I'm going to start my next segment, What's Coming Up Next, focusing on the films that will be released in theaters, and some may be released on streaming as well. But I'm going to focus on the ones that are in theaters because of a time crunch. So, on the weekend of December 17th, the biggest film that's going to be coming out in theaters is Spider-Man No Way Home. This is the 8th Spider-Man movie, or rather, I'm sorry, the ninth Spider-Man movie, but the third one that is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Tom Holland returns for the third time as Spider-Man slash Peter Parker. Zendaya returns as his friend who later became his love interest, MJ, whose real name is actually Michelle, because some people might interpret MJ being Mary Jane, as in Mary Jane Watson, but no, Zendaya does not play Mary Jane Watson. She just plays um, someone who is Tom Holland's love interest. And um, also, Benedict Cumberpatch appears in this film as Doctor Strange, making his uh, first appearance in a Marvel Cinematic Universe since Avengers Endgame. So it's good to, good to see him again. And Marissa Tomei reprises his, her role as um, Aunt May. So in Spider-Man No Way Home, Spider-Man's new identity has now been revealed for, I think, the very first time in any Spider-Man movie. But Peter Parker asks Doctor Strange for help. But when a spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. So, I will see a Spider-Man movie no matter what. The, the issue I had with the last Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Far From Home, is the fact that MJ, Zendaya's character, was supposed to be Tom Holland's love interest. And I didn't see any sparks between the two actors. That's my only problem with it, though. I, I would love to have Laura Harrier come back from Spider-Man Homecoming into this and be the girlfriend that Tom Holland deserves because the, 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 the chemistry between Tom Holland and Laura Harrier was far stronger than between Tom Holland and Zendaya, in my opinion. But Spider-Man No Way Home is a movie I will be seeing. I will eventually review it for you on this show, but it won't be next week. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters uh, on December 17th is Nightmare Alley. This is a movie that's directed by Guillermo del Toro and stars Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett, Mary Steenburgen, and several other great actors. So a lot of great actors and Rooney Mara, because Rooney Mara I think is overrated, but that's just my opinion, because this show is all about my opinion. But Nightmare Alley is about an ambitious carny 
which I assume to be somebody who works at a carnival, with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, and he hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. So Bradley Cooper is the one who plays the ambitious Carney, and I'm very intrigued to see this because it took me a while to warm up to Bradley Cooper, but I really have been impressed with his films over the last couple of years when he broke out of being the typecast of being the unlikable yuppie. But he does look like he's unlikable here, but in a dark kind of way. And I think Guillermo del Toro will, will extrapolate a great performance from Bradley Cooper, adding to some of his other movies like Silver Linings Playbook, for example, which I think is his best movie role to date. So Nightmare Alley is a film I will see. I will review it for you on the show eventually, just not next week. Another film that's coming out on December 17th or is subject to do so is a film that's called The Lost Daughter. This is about a woman's beach vacation that takes a dark turn when she begins to confront the troubles of her past. This movie is directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, which is very interesting because Maggie Gyllenhaal certainly knows her movies. And the movie stars Olivia Colman, the Academy Award winner, Jesse Buckley, who has not been nominated for an Academy Award yet, but my guess is he eventually will. Dakota Johnson, who is a better actress than her uh, sister. Oh, I'm sorry, Dakota Johnson. I was thinking of Dakota Fanning. Dakota Johnson is an ex- excellent actress, and she's been great in every film she's been in since, or rather, that hasn't been named Fifty Shades something. So she's been consistent in every other movie she's been in. And finally, Ed Harris is in this film. So the lost daughter looks like one of those films that despite having an excellent roster of talented actors and actresses, looks like a film that could come out in an indie theater near you. So be on the lookout for that. That is a film I imagine I will see. And I'll let you know what I think on my next show, which will not be next week. And finally, the last film that is subject to be released in theaters on December 17th is The Novice. This is a movie that is about a college freshman who joins her university's rowing team and undertakes an obsessive physical and psychological journey to make it to the top varsity boat, no matter the cost. The movie stars Isabel Furman, Amy Forsyth, uh, uh, a mono-named actor by the name of Delone, and Jonathan Cherry. Isabel Furman sounds familiar, but I don't know the other actors, but it's a film that I might see. If I do see it, I'll review it for you on the show eventually. And that's it for films that are subject to be released on December 17th. There are a lot of potentially great films, including some that are Oscar bait that are subject to be released on December 24th, i.e. Christmas Eve. The first one is The Matrix Resurrections. This is directed by one of the Wachowskis, but not the Wachowskis themselves. Instead, Lana Wachowski, who used to be Larry Wachowski, I won't tell you why she she's Lana Wachowski now, look it up, but you can probably extrapolate it for yourself. She is going to be directing this film, and the movie has Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss reprising their roles And also co-stars Christina Ricci, who we haven't seen for a while, and Jessica Henwick. And this follows Neo, who is living an ordinary life in San Francisco, where his therapist prescribes him blue pills. However, Morpheus offers him the red pill, 
and reopens his mind to the world of the Matrix. I do not know if Larry F- or Lawrence Fishburne is going to be reprising his role as Morpheus. My guess is he probably is, because who else could play Morpheus, Morpheus at this point? I think Lawrence Fishburne has made that role his own. I don't know how well this film is going to be. Again, I love the original Matrix. I liked the Matrix uh, um, Reloaded. And by the time the Matrix Revolution came out, I felt like they just threw everything at you, including uh, the kitchen sink. And I didn't think it was as great as it could have been. The Matrix Resurrections has some explaining to do, considering the fate of Keanu Reeves' character in the Matrix Revolutions, which I won't give away, but I will see it. Whether or not I'm going to like it, I doubt it. Or rather, I, I no guarantee that I'm going to love it, but I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that's going to be coming out in theaters or subject to be released on December 24th is The King's Man. And this is a film that takes place in the early years of the 20th century when the Kingsman Agency is formed to stand against a cabal plotting to wipe out, planning a war to wipe out millions. This is a prequel to Kingsman The Secret Service, which starred Taron Egerton, Ray Fiennes, and Samuel L. Jackson, in addition to other actors. I like the Kingsman movies, and this prequel might be good, or it might not be, but the movie stars Ray Fiennes, uh, Gemma Ardenton, Risa Fons, Harris Dickinson, and Jaiman Hunso. Of these actors, Harris Dickinson is probably the actor I know the least, but because I like the Kingsman movies so much, and I thought that the sequel to Kingsman the Secret Service had so much potential with uh, a branch being opened in America, which I hope to see a sequel or a spinoff to later. I really, really hope, uh, particularly if it uh, stars Channing Tatum and Halle Berry. I'm going to give the Kingsman a chance. I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to love it, but I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And there are so many other films that are subject to be released on December 24th, but unfortunately, I'm out of time. So thank you so much for tuning in to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am not going to see you. Well, actually, I can't see you, but the point is I am not going to be hosting the show for the rest of 2021. I'll be back in 2022 with a vengeance, and I'm hoping to have this show grow and develop a lot more, as well as having more people listen to it. But I'm so happy that you got through 2021 with me. I want to wish all of you who celebrated a very Merry Christmas. I want to wish people who celebrate Kwanzaa a very happy Kwanzaa. And to all of you, regardless of what you celebrate, have a very happy New Year. Until next time, this is Dan Burke saying, I'll see you at the movies.